in, in any event, so we're representing something in a mathematical object that even when we include a bunch of these nuances, non-pairwise interactions and so on, is a much simpler thing than reality. It's a gross simplification of reality. And you always have to worry that when you get reality and then you get data from reality, which is already making certain simplifications, and that you then turn it into a mathematical object that you study, you know, there's this thing of, okay, if I turn it into a mathematical object, I can say that potentially I am making a precise statement about the mathematical object, although even then there's approximations, but let's suppose that I'm doing that. Now I've made a precise statement about the mathematical object, and I want to turn that statement and imply something and say something about the real world, even though the mathematical object is a simplification of the real world. And you have to worry because there are artifactual things that occur by, by choosing to have represented something in a certain way. And the hope is that something that you then say about this object, hopefully can tell you also something about the more complicated thing it's representing. And so when you do something like these pairwise interactions, we know more about how to study them mathematically. So we spend a lot of time on them. When we make efforts to generalize, so polyadic interactions, and this I'm conventionally using polyadic to mean three plus, so some people call it higher order, but mono and then dyadic and then polyadic, so polyadic three plus, you need to generalize different concepts. One way of looking at the world reveals it as an interference pattern of dynamic, ever-changing links. Relationships that grow and break in nested groups of multi-layer networks. Identity can be defined by informational exchange between one cluster of relationships and any other. A kind of music starts to make itself apparent in the avalanche of data and new analytical approaches that a century of innovation has availed us. But just as with new music genres, it requires a trained ear to attune to unfamiliar order. What can we learn from network science and related general abstract mathematical approaches to discovering this order in a flood of numbers? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield. And in every episode, we bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week, we speak with SFI external professor, UCLA mathematician Mason Porter, about his research on community detection in networks and the topology of data, going deep into a varied toolkit of approaches that help scientists disclose deep structures in the massive data sets produced by modern life. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and consider making a donation or finding other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. I know it comes as a surprise, but this is our penultimate episode. Please stay tuned for one more show in May when SFI President David Krakauer and I will reflect on major themes and highlights from the last three and a half years and look forward to what I'll be doing next. It's been an honor and a pleasure to bring complex systems science to you in this way, and I hope we'll stay in touch. I won't be hard to find. Thank you for listening. Mason Porter, I am delighted 
finally have found the time to get you on Complexity Podcast. Before we dive into the science, I'd love just a bit of backstory about you as a researcher. Backstory. All right. So I guess I'll mention some things and you can let me know if this addresses it or not. I majored in applied mathematics at Caltech. And this was my actual major. So there is a separate applied math department, which is unusual in the US, though much more common, say, in the UK and some other countries. And before before I got to Caltech, I had, had I was I had encountered fractals just pictorially, not like something, not like the scientific meaning behind any of them. And I also had drawn, like as a kid, especially like kind of stuff I had seen in migraine headaches, like lots of fancy, flashy, mm. colorful patterns that does actually have some various connections to complex systems of certain types. Although again, I didn't know that at the time. So I really liked lots of bright colors and lots of fancy patterns and so on. And so I learned about fractals as something that included examples of them. And I went to Caltech, thought I was going to do computer graphics stuff, found that I liked applied math much better. I thought I was going to do computer graphics for like computer games or something. Although somehow I still had in my head that I was going to get a PhD to do that. So I knew from really early that I wanted to get a PhD, <laughs> but I thought I was going to be computer science. And I ended up doing applied math. I majored in applied math and so never even declared a computer science major. And I ended up becoming more interested. I'm still interested in all these fancy pictures. And this is why I have random colorful things going on all the time more than I should. But I became very interested in what models produced or could produce such patterns and really enjoyed the mathematical modeling and sort of coming up with equations of motion, governing equations for these things. And so I ended up then majoring in applied math. And one of the beauties of applied math is that you never have to decide what you want to be when you grow up and you can just keep working on new things and learning new things and never actually decide what your specialty is or specialize in not specializing. And then I went to grad school at Cornell in the Center for Applied Mathematics. This was a separate program. So not a separate department per se, but a separate program. And both Caltech's undergrad applied math major and Cornell's applied math grad program are actually within the engineering schools and in engineering or engineering divisions. And the mathematics department in each case was actually in a different division. After Cornell, I did, well, two full-length postdocs, but I also had a small visiting mini one in between, in, or in the middle of one of them. So I did a math postdoc at Georgia Tech, but I also was affiliated with the nonlinear physics group or nonlinear systems group in physics. So I was officially in the math department, but I also interacted a lot with people in physics and was very regularly a go-between. During my Georgia Tech time, I spent one semester at what's, what I think they've changed their, they're just about to change their name now, but Mathematical Sciences Research Institute, which is physically in Berkeley, they're becoming the Simon something Institute for math. They're, like, they're in between names at the moment. But I spent a semester there in a specific program that they had. So I guess I should also have timescales involved. So I graduated from Caltech in 1998, graduated from Cornell in 2002, started my postdoc fall 2002. My semester at this program at MSRI was spring 2003, so right in the middle of my first postdoc. When I finished my Georgia Tech postdoc, I was intending to go Become, get a faculty position. I was actually even on the faculty market and had interviews at some places that were nice, but I didn't get a job offer at places that, that I wanted. And I got a postdoc offer actually from physics this time to go back to Caltech. So the one time that I was mainly based in a physics department for two years and four months, and I was in the what's called the Center for the Physics of Information, which was an umbrella thing that Caltech had at the time. It was somewhat related to their quantum information stuff, 
but I was like the one person or just about, or one of the only people in there who was doing something other than quantum information. And so I did my, I did a second postdoc there. And then, uh, so that started in June of 2005. And then I finished there the end of September, 2007, moved to University of Oxford for my first faculty position. They call it the Mathematical Institute, but it, it means the department. And then was there for nine years and then moved to UCLA in 2016. Uh, and so that's been here since. I've been spending most of my time in math departments. So all my degrees are in applied math within engineering divisions. Spent one postdoc in physics and otherwise have been in math departments and let go between those and occasional other subjects in my research. Yeah, I think that's helpful as a way of making sense of like when I was looking through your work, when I was familiarizing myself, I remember David Krakauer saying to me once that there are two kinds of scientists that seem to filter into the SFI network. And some of them are anchored very squarely within one discipline or one kind of methodology. And they really, they benefit from this kind of boundaryless approach that's a complex system science as more kind of like a, a way of looking at things in a very general and, and unifying effort. And then there are these folks that just like take everything and apply it to a narrow range or like a particular area of focus. Anyway, I want to start now that you've given me your backstory with a little bit of the backstory because as we noted over email, I went pretty far back in your publication history. And the earliest piece that I, I read was a piece that you led with Anela and Muka on community detection, communities in networks, which is a piece from 2009. And right. as you noted, a lot has changed since. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, that's even actually a survey article. It's not actually a research article. Right. It's always a question as to who's listening, what their level of familiarity is with the content of this show. It's almost become a kind of a joke at SFI that the think of everything as a network phase is so far behind us now that it feels like a high school yearbook photo or something. But Yeah, I, yeah I'm not sure if it's behind us. Yeah. But good cuz I cuz this is this is something that I think is still really vital and not as widely understood as could be just as a way of introducing people to some of the core concepts that you're exploring in this work and have okay. elaborated on and deepened in research since. Let's talk about community network okay. detection. So yeah, yeah so, introduce this. Yeah, piece. so yeah, so community detection remains a very prominent area of network science and of related things. And its origins go back, it has various origins in different topics that go back quite a while. It's really, it's a type of clustering and people have been clustering. Well, this is not literally true, but people have been clustering data for time immemorial, right? Like it's like, it's almost biblical, right? Like on day eight, we cluster data, <laughs> right? This part of the Bible that somehow is missing. It's actually, there's some earlier than that, right? There's, there's this guy, Rice, I think it's Stuart Rice, who was essentially doing some type of clustering with congressional data, and he was doing it more by hand. And I'm sure 
the notion of clustering data and just trying to make more sense of it is something that people have done before there were official algorithms, right? Like, like human beings want to make sense of something if they're trying to explain it. And maybe some of the details don't matter. So the notion of data clustering, I am sure predates long before any official beginnings. But I know the earliest or I think the earliest paper we cite in that work was by was Stuart Rice, I might be screwing up his first name. But there's a lot of work on there's a lot of work from computer science on trying to do things became spectral clustering. Spectral means, just from a technical point of view, using ideas like eigenvalues and eigenvectors. I'm doing a bunch of buzzwords, but anyway, those are at least Googleable and is stuff that has both a rich mathematical history and a rich computer science history. And you might have a system that you want to divide. And those methods were originally, so it's from the early 70s, those methods were meant to divide a network into sort of maybe roughly equal size parts. But contrast with that, think of more social domains circles of friends or other things and some sets of people so what a community is supposed to be intuitively and defining it mathematically is it takes more effort and has been challenging to do it really rigorously but dense sets of connections that in principle are sparsely connected to other dense sets so that's what i'm saying circles of friends so you might have a bunch of people who are friends from a dorm but then somebody's an exchange student and so they serve as a bridge to a dense set of people maybe from maybe they came from another country or something right like that's the intuition i know that the term community structure also gets used in ecology it doesn't mean exactly the same thing as the way that i'm using the word here but somehow to algorithmically find dense sets of say people or whatever that are sparsely connected to other dense sets. And so community detection very broadly refers to that type of problem. And a lot of network scientists have spent, and others have spent a lot of time on it. There's actually one, one prominent paper, and this is where the term, I think this is a term, the one where they use the term community detection as opposed to other terms like clustering or whatnot. It's a paper by Michelle Gervin and Mark Newman, who are gonna be two familiar names, SFI folks. This is a 2002 paper. And they were using they were using a measure of importance of edges. So trying to find it's called betweenness centrality. Trying to find connections that are somehow important. And so in particular, think of the edge that the edges that are involved from this exchange student. Those are if I'm trying to go from one part of the network to another edges that would have dense traffic. If I imagine some message passing through and measuring who you know who might be the bottleneck. And so they developed a method based on that. There are various issues with the method, but it was a paper that brought the attention of this problem to a lot of people. I even probably say this in this particular paper that you're looking at. It brought the yeah, attention. Yeah, you do actually, yeah. You do actually say that. Okay, good. So at least it's not that my opinions of the history have changed. It's just that the methods have developed and how one thinks about mm. the problem, say mathematically or how some, I should say that the short version of what has changed is that there's a lot more statistical inference methods now that are existed before 2009, but were not, there were certain issues with them, they weren't getting good results just yet. And so they had more theoretical grounding. And there were certain advances that allowed them to not just have more theoretical grounding, but could also get good results in practice. There's still other types of methods as well. I actually like methods that are based on dynamical systems, where maybe a different type of dynamics might have different bottlenecks, or might have different communities. That's my own personal view. That's not the predominant one that the literature follows. But anyway, there were, and then at the time, again, to doing the survey in 2009, trying to say, what are different approaches people use? Another approach that people very naturally think about, and it comes not originally from community detection, but just in general, people like objective functions to try 
to say maximize. People like objective functions. So there's something that you're studying and okay, maybe I can encapsulate this in an objective function. And this objective function, even in the best case scenarios, is going to have issues and not be a perfect encapsulation of what you want. But this is this modularity objective function, which has since been torn to pieces by various people. But it's trying to measure what is dense inside versus versus between, maybe relative to some kind of random baseline. And the world is not so simple. And if you just try to define something that way and try to maximize it. So that was those were the, that was like the predominant kind of approach at the time. And it's still used a lot. And I know that some people will not agree with me on the following, but I think it's still useful to sometimes do it. But it's definitely, it does not have, say, the theoretical grounding of other things. And it's known to go wrong in certain ways. And you can construct examples in which it goes wrong. And the beginnings of that were occurring in published papers before this survey article. So there was a work in 2007, for instance, by Bartholomew and Fortunato about a resolution limit, which is one of the, there's a whole list of issues with that approach, but that was one particular issue with that approach that had been illustrated before. And really, it's, it, again, what's, if you look at the community detection literature now on the methodological end, you'll see a lot more statistically oriented kind of approaches. And if you look at what practitioners are doing, sometimes they'll do that and sometimes not. And then, as I mentioned, there are these sort of dynamical process-based approaches, which is the one that I actually think is a more interesting one to pursue. Again, my personal point of view, the issue is that the ones that people know how to deal with are dynamical processes that are based on very simplistic ones, based on random walks, as opposed to a dynamical process based on something else. So in particular, my view is the following, that community structure should not actually just be a structural thing. There are certain approaches, both doing it with objective functions and a couple of the statistical inference ones, that can be related to bottlenecks of, say, a random walk on a network in some particular way. So you imagine somebody's bouncing around on a network, and they're following the edges, and you measure how long they spend in certain places, and bottlenecks are between communities, so that's where they get stuck. So they bounce around a lot. So think of, if you're talking about a rumor spreading, people are talking a lot to the same people, and a lot of people there will have heard it before, but you still you have the sort of whispers, and you need the exchange student or whatnot for it to get to the other side of the world. So you can think of some notion of a bottleneck, and so my sort of perspective on community structure now is that this should be the networks that you get from a bottleneck. But the thing is, if I have a different type of dynamic, I could get a different bottleneck because maybe different structures are bottlenecks to different dynamics. And then the rub is that there's only a couple of dynamical processes that we actually know how to do this with. But that's the sort of perspective that I think is interesting because even though we can do everything as a network and there is a notion of network structure, usually we're thinking about something occurring on that network. And I don't see why it should be the same structure that shows up if it's a different thing occurring. I don't think that has to be true. But that's not the, that's not the prevalent view of this in the literature. Interesting, because I feel like I oversight, actually, at this point on the show, the conversation I had with Brian Arthur a while back, 68 and 69, where he was talking about the way that different methodologies disclose or enact different ontologies. And specifically talking about the way that if you're using algebraic thinking to study the economy, you're going to get a whole different view of what an economy is than if you're, sure. th if you're thinking of it algorithmically. Right. And so that's this right. object and, or process sure. thing. Sure. I definitely think it's good for people to study problems in different ways, right? Like I think it's important for people to use different approaches. And to not just say, oh, this approach is the best. Everyone else should do it that way too. I think that's 
Okay, okay. Not, I'm going to use the word dangerous. It's not dangerous. The world's going to blow up dangerous, but it's suboptimal, I think. And so I'm perfectly happy for other people to approach things in different ways. And I and in different papers that I've written, and also depending on who my co-authors are, I have thought about problems in different ways, and I feel like I benefit from doing that. So at least the way I'm interpreting what you're saying of his, colored by my own view and people mm-hmm. wanting to hear what they want to hear, that seems to be consistent with what I think. Well, that is certainly something that that popped up for me in reading this survey, which was this every one of these approaches you identify as having that its own distinct portfolio of benefits and drawbacks. And flaw, and, yeah. And, and, and so definitely and flaws when you're talking too. about Yeah, when you're talking about like optimization and optimization problems. We had Chris Moore on the show. I think it was episode 51. Right. I mean, Chris is an expert on this topic as well. So he'll have his, so a lot of the contributions have come from he and his crowd. So it's my tendency thinking about this stuff, just coming out of, I remember like as an undergraduate being forced to stand up in front of an evolutionary biology class and defend one kind of species concept over every other and just getting super frustrated by this because it's also like the situatedness, the contextuality of all of these different approaches matters. And then like the way that the kind of thinking that you're espousing here is one in which, first of all, people are required to show their work. And then that's- Oh yeah, no, you you have to do that. No, I do not like hidden assumptions. I'm perfectly happy with assumptions. I, I, I really hate it when someone tries to put something under the rug, like passionately. Yeah, but, and then, but then there's this other thing, which I think as a way of conveying what seems like it makes the status quo of complex system science as practiced by SFI institutionally, is that people here seem to enjoy bringing to bear a whole different portfolio of techniques on a single question and not assuming that one is going to outperform the rest. Yeah. So at any rate, that having been said, I wanted to double back because in as much as this is me just getting to indulge my own noob learning in public here, I want to talk a little bit more about the way that these networks, these techniques reveal modularity and hierarchy in communities. And I'd love to hear you riff on that because like there's... This is just to call the shot. This is a way of setting the table for later in this conversation, talking about paper that you led on the topology of data and how different layers of granularity or like fuzziness, different levels of resolution of data seem to reveal, again, like completely different, like different objects, like the Jigglypuff thing, but I don't want to. Right, right. Yeah, but so it's just like. Yeah, we, and we published a Pokemon in a serious physics venue. It may not happen again, but we got away with it, which is good. Jigglypuff, is, by the way, like if you've seen the Detective Pikachu, indignant Jigglypuff is my spirit animal, <laughs> but specifically the indignant type. Okay, so let me see if I can remember what the original question was. Oh, well, let me, yeah. So for me, it's like uh, on the one hand, you have this sort of methodological pluralism, but then on the other hand, you have all of this work that different people have done in the SFI network on how the granularity or the level at which you are studying a phenomenon is really going to radically change the way that you understand it. And like when you've got people like David and Jess and Nihat and these others that are working on what exactly constitutes an individual. I just find this question about community detection very closely related to 
that kind of fundamental inquiry. Right. And so I'd love to hear okay. you talk about that kind of stuff. Okay. I think about community detection when I put it in that language as a sort of abstract problem in the sense of I have already, say, constructed a network, or it could be something whether in the form of literally it's a graph with pairwise interactions, but it could be something more complicated than that because there's generalizations of graphs. But we've already turned it into a mathematical object, and I view community detection as something that we're doing to look at a mathematical object, and it then gives an output. And the type of structure we're looking at is a specific type of what I would call a mesoscale structure. So hopefully this is starting to get at what you're bringing up, where the microscale structure might be the individual nodes or potentially individual edges and so on. And a macroscale structure might be distributions of stuff, whether it's distributions of the number of friends or whatnot. Do you have many people with few friends or lots of or a few people with many friends? So it's macroscale in that sense. The metoscale mesoscales is stuff in the middle, and communities are a particular type of mesoscale structure, in particular a type in which you have dense connections inside, whatever that means, in sparse connections between. There are other types of mesoscale structures, like there's something called a core periphery structure where you still might have dense stuff, but it's connected to other things, but not necessarily in a sparse way. There is something that social scientists call roles and positions or like role structure, where it might not be that you have literal denseness, but maybe the interaction patterns say, oh, a faculty member has a certain type of interaction patterns, like a local network structure, and a graduate student has a certain other type of interaction pattern, another network structure, presumably with more friends than the faculty member has, but you're identifying similarity of the structure rather than literal denseness. So there's different types of mesoscale structures that people study, and community structure is somehow, maybe the one that people have advanced the most on, I would say, it's the most straightforward to think about. There's advancements on the others too. And then that is more of a community structure is more of a sort of modular type of structure, right? So the term modularity, I mean, there's the English meaning of the term, which I think is fairly even goes back to, this is another old paper that we cite in that article, actually, the architecture of complexity, right? This is Herbert Simon, who was talking about sort of modular structures where the idea is that maybe in terms of maybe a possible explanation of some types of robustness, where if you change something in one module, it doesn't mean that anything else outside that module has changed. And he was doing this mostly with words in that paper. But Herbert Simon, unlike most of us, can see things without actually working out the calculations as much, where I think most normal, most humans need to actually like work through the calculations and do this and don't necessarily have that kind of vision. I don't have that kind of vision. But now, so that's more of a modular, right? So think of it as a horizontal, the math department, the physics department, the ecology department, or whatnot. A hierarchical structure and there's p- the people use the word hierarchy in different ways as well. But from this point of view, think of an individual, right? You brought that up, a sub-department, so maybe the applied math group or whatnot, the entire math department, the entire College of Arts and Sciences, the entire university, right? There's a sort of nestedness that's built into that hierarchy. And that's something that can, elic- can exist alongside a hierarchical structure, or sorry, alongside a modular structure. In fact, we give an example of this, and this is another SFI person. This is a picture that Aaron Closset kindly let us use, where he was thinking ecologically, but I made a snarky remark in that paper, pretending that these parasitic intera- grassland species interactions were actually between faculty members. You can unpack that comment any way that you'd like, but the picture (laughs) comes from Aaron Closset and he kindly let us use it. And that picture very specifically has both a hierarchical and a modular structure combined into it. And a paper that a variant of that picture originally came from, so a paper that is 
I think it's actually Aaron and, and Chris Moore and Mark Newman. I think it's that paper, the 2008 Nature paper of theirs, if I remember correctly, was a paper that used a hierarchical statistical model in it to look for modules, right? So that particular picture even came from a paper where hierarchy and modules were combined or a variant of that picture. And I was using it just to point out that these things exist simultaneously. They're not the same thing. You can have an interaction between me and, say, collaboration with a physicist at another university. And the fact that I've identified them as a physics a physicist means I've put a level of granularity on the label that is not the level of the condensed matter group and is not the level of the individual, right? So you've got, you, know, you can imagine couplings that depend on different levels of the hierarchy in different ways, right? But community structure by itself, like I think of the problem initially more as looking at modular things, but you can have hierarchical ideas and approaches that are also built into the methods and into potentially the way that you're looking at the problem. Cool. From there, I'd like to move on to an application of this kind of stuff. You've got this Physica A 2012 piece that you co-authored with uh, Trout and Muka, the social structure of Facebook networks. So this is just to call back all the way to, I think it was episode 12 and we had Matt Jackson and that was before he'd done his work on Facebook data and right. the flow of disinformation. Right. And I hope to get him back for that one. But right. this is another really interesting piece that is cracking open this enormous data set that you get from Facebook yeah. and looking at, I don't know, I get paranoid thinking about the roots of some of this stuff going all the way back to like Greg Bateson and schismogenesis and so on. Like, what do you do with like a community? structure info once you have it like but maybe you can help me think about this in a more pleasant way yeah well, i don't know if it's gonna be more pleasant people don't usually get through conversations with me thinking better about the world especially when it comes to <laughs> ethical issues and social media and destroying democracy and or i guess facebook's or facebook's been quiet lately i suppose i'm supposed to blame twitter now right i don't know but anyway okay, this so is a cool paper and yeah yeah so i could tell yeah so this i could tell so this paper was actually a sequel paper and so there's this 2011 paper that's a methods paper that this is a companion of and what we were trying to do so we have this facebook data this is from the pre-cambrian era of facebook so an important part important aspect of the data that's used in this paper is that you had to have a .edu account at the time, okay? So the structure of Facebook back then is completely different from what's there now. The other thing I want to mention about that data is that we're looking at connections between Facebook pages only. So it's not using anything about what anybody posts or what anybody sees or how they interact. It is purely there is a structural thing that's there and there's certain metadata about it, like maybe a numerical identifier for somebody's major, a technically numerical identifier for whether male or female. I think it only had a, it only did male or female back then. So also various cultural norms have moved on a bit since then. But anyway, had that identifier, had class year, had, but only like a few different identifiers. It was actually a very sparse set of identifiers. And we had a hundred different universities and we had developed methodology to try to look at, okay, at a very coarse level. And community structure, when it comes to an application, is really for coarse level things. If you try to start saying too much about it, then you really have to worry more and more about when something is an artifact of a particular method you chose. And given the messiness of these methods, I'm much more comfortable using this for coarse things. And in particular, 
the hope in principle is that an insight that you might get from this type of calculation would then be instead then it's instead of a thousand things to experiment and look at closely, maybe there's now 20, right? It's supposed to narrow down the possibilities but you shouldn't trust it to tell you which one exactly is right. You should still then go with the domain expert, but at least it might suggest you know, what to look at in more detail. And so we are comparing 100 different universities and trying to say, well, how do they very broadly speaking organize? And so there's predominantly, you get a lot of stuff from class year, but you also get dormitory residents. Sometimes some universities is coupled with class year. Dormitory residents was actually predominant at three out of the 100 universities as the main one, whereas class year was at 97 out of the 100. So even at that level, you get some difference. I knew that Caltech would be different. I knew that from my own time there. And so I also used in that sense domain knowledge to know that my own school is an outlier. And in fact, that particular Caltech Facebook data set, including if you just do even things like Fiedler values, and of course, most of the listeners won't know what that means. It's actually structurally different from the other, not just because it's the smallest one. There's actually structural difference. So Caltech's weird in every respect, including mathematically. But so we were looking at broad differences. And the data set, you know, this is a hundred different realizations of the same process. Normally, you only get something that clean if you're talking about generative model, like some synthetic rule for how to create a network. And so another way that this data set's been used, because the data set's been used in quite a few papers by various people at this point. So this particular paper of mine is, it is a well-cited paper, but I think it's because people use the data set. I think it's much less known about the particular kind of I don't know, statements we made about relative universities, right? It's just people citing it because they use a data set, I think is the most common thing. So not all citations are created equal. That's another important thing to remember. But not that I don't complain about people citing it. It's just, but let's be, I want to be, keep it real about why they're doing it. It's because they're citing it because they're then using the data set for something. But because you have a hundred different realizations of the same thing, and vary across sizes, where the smallest one has 762 nodes and the largest connected component. You can tell I've studied this a lot. And the largest one has, I think, over 40,000. So you also have a couple orders of magnitude, or at least almost a couple orders of magnitude. And you can put some sort of dynamical process on top of it and compare things. Or you can do some other method that you want to study, including some of these community detection methods, and compare things. And so, you know, one of the contributions of the initial study of going through all those hundred hundred schools is to have something that people have used for other things, whether it's development methods and so on. And there's also been some more sociologically oriented studies that have followed up on what we did. And that's the sort of basic idea. So it's meant to be an application. The actual, we jokingly internally called it the data dump paper, because it's like we developed this methodology and approach to think of, okay, let's broaden broad brushstrokes, compare the community structure across a few different things. So that was the 2011 SIAM review paper. So we developed this broad thing. It's like, okay, but we have 100 schools. Let's just compare all of them and take what we've done and do the data dump. So in fact, the file that one would download from my HTML file is actually literally called datadump.pdf because this was the data dump paper. And yeah, so it's anyway, I think it was a nice application. I enjoyed it. I continue to use this data set because just having 100 different instances of a real world thing that has been generated using the same process. So there's actually a paper that really also gives, I guess, I wouldn't say further evidence, but strengthens the evidence, makes it more concrete, that it really is a hundred instances of the same process. So this particular paper also involves some people I've mentioned before. So I'm not involved in this. Aaron Klossett's on it, Johan Ugander, and I'm messing up and forgetting the junior folks, which is not good. But 
I think one of Aaron's former students or something, one or two of them. And what they were looking at was whether, say, a larger version, a larger school, if you took, is that somehow like the smaller one, but having grown to a larger size, right? So if I took my school of size 762 and let it grow until that network is of the larger one, do they actually look like they came from the same process? And there's more detail on that than that in their paper, but essentially the answer is yes. So it really is a an ensemble, and I'm using the word ensemble on purpose, from the real world instead of an ensemble from, say, a synthetic model, traditionally what we call a random graph model. So that makes it very useful when you're testing methods or when you want to put look do it a paper which has some sort of process disease spread or of course it makes sense for like information spread or rumor spread because well you really would well hopefully not spread rumors but you really would communicate with your facebook friends so it is at least at some level there's a verisimilitude where it's the type of network on which this would occur right like papers where someone puts disease spread on a protein interaction network and you're like okay well mathematically you can do that but you're suspending reality a bit because disease spread is not the type of process that occurs on a protein interaction network, even though I can define it mathematically as a network and I can mathematically put this process on it. The Facebook network feels a little bit more genuine for something like that. So I think you may have already hit this point when you're talking about the tabulating assortativity based on gender, major residence, class year in high school, and how these say later in the paper that High school plays a greater role in the social organization of large universities than it does at smaller institutions where there are typically fewer pairs of people from the same high school. Right. There's this question for me that relates to another statement you've made here, and then I'll see if this is really all actually one question, where you say, because of the different rates of initial Facebook adoption at different institutions, the single point in time represented by the data might usefully describe different stages in the formation of an online social network. I'm thinking about the conversation I just had with Alison Gopnik about explore exploit trade-offs or in like childhood development and how patterns of behavior change. Like there was, oh God, I'm forgetting who did it. I'll look this up for the show notes, but the work that was on, it was, it came out of, I think Jeff Weston on scaling and the role of sleep and like why it is that kids sleep so much more. Curious what your thoughts are about because on the one hand, you're saying like, don't use a disease spread model and protein networks. Yeah. On well, the, math, math, mathematically, yeah. you can do it. It's just a mm-hmm. matter of you're suspending reality a little bit. But mathematicians spend re- suspend reality all the time. I am sure <laughs> that I have a paper in which I've used an example of a disease spread model on that. But what I'm really trying to do is to make a mathematical statement of how the disease spread works on a network with a different structure. So it's still mathematically, I'm allowed to do it. It's just, it's just when you start thinking about the example, you're like, well, that's weird. So I guess, I guess what I'm actually shooting for here is, do you think that these findings generalize or like hook into in any way, kind of a broader statement on the growth of networks, whether they be in social or biological systems. Yeah, so I'm not sure. I will say that the paper that I mentioned by Aaron and Johan and company do actually, that paper actually directly deals with the growth of of Facebook networks. So in terms of the sort of more kind of immediate question, there is actually a paper that studied that explicitly. And that does appear to be the case for these examples. In terms of more general, I don't really I don't really know because I mean, I've heard of some of the works that you're mentioning, but I don't 
Like, I don't think I know those specific papers, for instance. One thing I want to mention about assortativity, because I actually think it's a bit of a different question. I think you were saying you're not sure whether it was the same question or not. Assortativity is a specific measure, and a certain measure of assortativity is actually a measure of a type of correlation. And the idea is that even if I have a small school, I could have a very high value of that correlation, but the that assortativity is impacting the structure more just by having enough people in the first place. So it's a matter of... It's not just measuring that. So let me tell you, I can tell you a little bit about where that calculation came from and where, where those comments in the paper came from. I don't know if this is still true, but it felt like this is true before. You could you could kick a sociologist, and I don't, rem- I don't recommend doing this. You could kick a sociologist and they'll respond with, that's because of homophily. It's because of homophily. And the actual point of that comment was that, no, in fact, community structure is not just homophily. Assortativity is a scalar measure that is supposed to give some signature of homophily. It's not literally homophily, but that's what it's supposed to do. And the idea is that assortativity could be high in both cases, but the community structure and the effect on it would be different depending on the numbers, trying to distinguish that these mesoscale structures are not just homophily. So that's actually where that comment came from. And that's just coming from saying, I have a high correlation. I have a high correlation. I measure a correlation. And the measurement of that correlation in terms of the impact on community structure is going to depend on how many of those things are there. And so the idea is that the community structure calculation is a different calculation. It is at a different scale of the system. And it's not just homophily. And so I think that's a different issue. It's certainly, anyway, that's what we were thinking, right? So that was the type of thing that we were writing there. We were, we were reacting to the, it's just homophily refrain that at the time I was seeing too many times. And I think that's a different issue from what happens with networks of different sizes as they grow. It was more something's in a mesoscale versus something is a different measurement. Yeah, because definitely, I think I found myself going into the kick a sociologist kind of thinking that you're critiquing here, reading this and just wondering, it strikes me, anyone who's done any amount of like international travel knows that homophily dominates hostile social networks because you have these like very, yeah. But it's, but homophily is referring though to interactions. It's referring to a micro scale thing. Then there's the question is what is the impact on a mesoscale and a macro scale? That's why I'm saying I don't consider them to be the same question. So homophily is very important, but it's not the only thing going on. So there's another piece of nuance I'd like to hear you add to this, because I've heard you say in numerous papers, as well as in the talk that you gave at SFI, that like a lot of the thinking on network structure tends to assume pairwise interactions in the model. Right, because that's that's the easiest thing to do. Right. The reality is, if you look at this, it's like, okay, yeah, as a first pass approximation, whether right. somebody accepts your friend request or whatever, so, but like there are, right. so, there's so many different pieces to this. So we do it because it's, we do a lot of these things because we know how to do them, not because we necessarily think it's the be all and end all. And if you're going to go beyond pairwise interactions, or if you're going to go to have interactions that change with time, or if you're going to go to have interactions that have there's maybe multiple types of interactions, multiple communication channels, multiple types of relationships, you're going to end up having a mathematical representation that's more complicated. And I've spent a lot of time studying various ones of those, and other people have spent a lot of time studying various ones of those. And it's a very cool thing to do, 
And there's good reason to do it because in the way that I probably phrase it in my talk, because I often phrase it that way, people are not walking around holding sticks that other people are holding, right? Even the notion of saying two people are friends, there is this latent set of interactions between them, phone calls and emails and going to the movie and going out to eat and whatnot that you're not seeing and you are representing as a number in a matrix saying that these two people are holding and attached to a stick and we're, we're using a mathematical representation that says people are holding a stick and that's, that's not what we see, right? What we see is two people are having dinner together or whatever, right? Well, hopefully you don't see that because you shouldn't be stalking them, but interactions <laughs> and somehow we represent the interactions as a, as a network. Yeah, I'm very snarky and make comments like this all the time, apologies. But in, in any event, so we're representing something in a mathematical object that even when we include a bunch of these nuances, non-pairwise interactions and so on, is a much simpler thing than reality. It's a gross simplification of reality. And you always have to worry that when you get reality and then you get data from reality, which is already making certain simplifications, and that you then turn it into a mathematical object that you study, you know, there's this thing of, okay, if I turn it into a mathematical object, I can say that potentially I am making a precise statement about the mathematical object, although even then there's approximations, but let's suppose that I'm doing that. Now I've made a precise statement about the mathematical object, and I want to turn that statement and imply something and say something about the real world, even though the mathematical object is a simplification of the real world. And you have to worry because there are artifactual things that occur by, by choosing to have represented something in a certain way. And the hope is that something that you then say about this object, hopefully can tell you also something about the more complicated thing it's representing. And so when you do something like these pairwise interactions, we know more about how to study them mathematically. So we spend a lot of time on them. When we make efforts to generalize, so polyadic interactions, and this I'm conventionally using polyadic to mean three plus, so some people call it higher order, but mono and then dyadic and then polyadic, so polyadic three plus, you need to generalize different concepts. And when you generalize those concepts, so we talked about assortativity or ideas of homophily. Assortativity, standard type, is a pairwise concept. If I'm going to take something like this and generalize it to polyadic interactions, I will have many different choices of how to generalize it. And some generalizations might be appropriate for some problems, and other generalizations might be appropriate for other problems. And we need to work out science. And this is where a lot of papers are currently, not necessarily assortativity per se, but a lot of papers on the theory end are saying, well, if we take a certain idea and generalize it to networks that are more complicated mathematically in different ways, what are the consequences? Which way should we do it? So there's a lot of work right now one way of having polyadic interactions is with things called hypergraphs and taking various methods and putting them on hypergraphs. I think that's on another of the papers that you pulled out. Putting that was an, actually uh, a big, that was a, sub, a bounded confidence model of opinion dynamics on hypergraphs right, was the subject right. of the talk you gave at SFI last summer. And we'll be sure to exactly, link to that. Yes. Exactly. So you can put an opinion model when you allow interactions, three people in a room, not just pairwise or whatnot. And you can generalize it in different ways. And so working out how to do it and how to study those mathematically or doing community detection on hypergraphs, not just on graphs, or disease spread where you have poly polyadic interactions. And so you need to work out how you generalize certain concepts. And, and so that's where a lot of the theory goes. Say, okay, I have a more complicated mathematical object. I want to take the things that I think are useful or interesting to study, and I now want to study them on a more complicated mathematical object. How am I going to do that? And there's different ways of doing it. And even in cases where there might only be one or two ways of doing it in a pairwise situation on ordinary graph, 
on standard network, there might be more ways, or usually are more ways. The example that I tend to like to give, although it involves buzzwords, but I will, everything involves buzzwords. It's like this episode of Star Trek where everything is in reference to something else. And so somehow you have to find the baseline. Instead of being turtles all the way down, it's communities all the way down. But there's something called the singular value decomposition. And I'm not going to bother explaining what it is because that's just another side point. But every matrix has a singular value decomposition. You are guaranteed to take a matrix and to phrase it as a product of other matrices that have certain properties. You are always allowed to do this. All right, I can generalize matrices to a more complicated mathematical object, in particular, something called a tensor. Again, you can look it up. Not starring Keanu Reeves, at least not yet. That should have been, The sequel to the matrix should have been called the tensor. But anyway, you can do a tensor. There are different versions of singular value decompositions for tensors. However, you cannot keep all the properties of the matrix version. So there's a there are variants that keeps, say, suppose you're allowed to keep two out of three properties. All right, I keep properties A and B, and I generalize C. Not allowed to, I'm not allowed to keep all three properties. I keep A and B, generalize C, different ways of doing it. Keep A and C, generalize B, different ways of doing it. And so, okay, that's not the precise thing that's going on here, but the idea is that I generalize from graphs to hypergraphs. I lose some guarantees. I have to change certain things. There's more possibilities of what can occur, and they have different consequences mathematically, and some might be more appropriate for some applications, and some might be more appropriate for others. And a lot of the effort that we spend time on in these theoretical papers is trying to figure out different choices. And I don't yet know, and I think most others don't either. I think they may, some people may claim they know, but I don't think that they do, of which ways are actually the best ways to do that. So that actually brings me to, I might be putting you on the spot here, but wanted to bring this up because it was a really interesting example. And in the survey piece we, we first discussed about real world settings in which community detection matter because they have palpable social consequences, right? And you've actually, the bounded confidence model piece and the talk that you gave emphasized understanding or perhaps even mitigating polarization. There's this figure early on about research by Wayne Zachary on a karate club and the schism that happens in the karate club and how you can you can see in the visualization of that network exactly how the party lines, if you will, are going to split when things when the center cannot hold when things fall apart. And not to like linger here, but I just want to stress and then hear you speak to the fact that there are not simply ethical considerations in the way that this data is collected, but also in precisely the kind of choices that you're making. Because if people are trying to use these tools to predict rifts in social organization, then... It's like, I feel like suddenly I'm staring into an abyss here where like decision makers are actually running with this stuff in the real world. Right. Well, it only gets worse from there. The Karate Club paper, or the original one, this is, the Karate Club, of course, is an infamous data set. So I am a member of the Zachary Karate Club, as it were, which, so the data set has its own Wikipedia page. But this, even in the sort of, quote, simplest, social network. And this is not a large network. There are 34 nodes, 34 individuals. And if you actually look in the original paper, you'll notice that there is, I'll use the word typo, but like error where it's not clear if a certain edge should be there or not, because it's an undirected network. But then there's an adjacency matrix where there's a one in 
a certain entry and the corresponding transpose entry, it's not there. So the question is, should they both be ones or should they both be zeros? If you're just saying, and again, ignoring the, there's some versions in, the, in that paper that have values on the connections as well. But so even in the simplest situations, you already have messiness, let alone in the data, let alone in the stuff that we study now and more complicated things. That paper though, the thing is the schism was really a retrodiction right? Like it occurred while the study was occurring. And so then Zachary looked at it afterwards and said, oh, okay, maybe I could have anticipated this based on who was interacting with whom, right? So the study was occurring after the fact, as opposed to imagine that somebody is a consultant for a company and they do a survey, right? And so there has not been a schism yet. And they go to some consultant network scientist who's being paid a lot of money to detect communities. You know, I'm really in fantasy land now, right? It's like, you're going to get rich by detecting communities. I suppose somebody could, but it's not the academics who are doing that. In any event, suppose you're some consultant and you're asked, all right, well, get some survey of who's hanging out with whom, do I have to worry about whether there is a rift? I think, I think that's reasonable to say, well, there's cause for nervousness. Anytime your result might Im impact what a human actually does in real life, there's cause for nervousness, right? I think there's much more, there's much more nervousness than that, right? That's what I'm saying. It's only the beginning. Like, so for instance, if I start detecting communities and all of my friends somehow are known terrorists and people are going to suspect that I'm a terrorist. So this is a random example. I should make that very clear. But people are going to su suspect that I'm a known terrorist because I am, or not that I'm a known one, but that I'm a terrorist because all my friends are terrorists who showed up in the same community. So all of a sudden you have somebody say being targeted because they were assigned to the same community and some algorithmic method, right? Like that worries me a lot more than just purely wondering if there's going to be a schism in a, co in a company and maybe we should do something to prevent a schism in the company if we don't want a schism, right? Like types of things where the result of an inference start targeting individuals concerns me a lot more than something at the level of a schism of a company. And you can use in principle these methods. You can literally say, here's a, suppose I get a, Suppose I get a community that has 20 people who all have a label and they're all colored red because there's self-identified label that these people are red. And there's one other person in the community who did not say that they're red, but now I think that they're red because all their friends are red. And there is a reasonable chance that they are, right? And that's something that these sorts of methods in principle can do. You can, you try to make inferences about things you don't know yet, right? You have labels that are known, you have labels that are unknown, but then how are you using those labels, especially if you're using it in the real world and not just saying, well, here's a paper and it's red. That's a big concern. That's a very big concern. So in the thing, in the time that we have left, I want to, because did I specifically called out this piece just came out January, 2023 in Physics Today that you wrote with Michelle Fang and Eleni Katafori. And this is on the topology of data. So again, yeah. we're going to, let's get, dig ourselves out oh. of the ethical conundrum. So we are now here. in, we are now in January, 2023. So th this is an expository article, I should also say. So physics today mm. is, uh, well, I tell mathematicians that this is the physics version of notices of the American Mathematical Society. I know that doesn't really help this podcast, but physics today is a monthly it's actually a magazine, not a journal. So think of it like Scientific American, but for physicists, right? So it's maybe a little bit more technical than Scientific American because it's assuming kind of a broad physics background. But broad physics background does not mean physics professor, right? So you can assume that most of the people who get physics today are people who had either a physics or related undergraduate degree. And that's 
the sort of audience, right? So anybody you're working- probably selling this magazine to our listening audience here, I suspect. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, that's not, no, I'm okay. actually, I make no money from that, but I'm just trying to say, what I'm trying to do, sorry, I have a tendency to go down into rabbit holes more than I should. What I'm I just to mean do that is it's just, probably, you're probably making it sound rather appealing to okay. our listeners. Well, yeah, yeah. So our article, so that I'm just saying that's who our article is written for. So it is meant to be an article that should be accessible. And if we did our job, so, but, so just as a contrast, this communities and networks actually appeared in an analogous venue for mathematicians for whatever it's worth. But yeah, anyway, so yeah, so this came out in January and was necessarily short because it was, that's what's required. And we, we wanted to, I guess I'll say what the article is. So there's a mathematical subject called topology and the traditional example, and we do have this example in the paper to set the stage, is that a topologist cannot tell the difference between a coffee cup and a donut. This is like the standard trope. And we're thinking of a coffee cup that has a handle. So there's this notion of a hole and a donut has a notion of a hole, right? You're viewing a donut. We don't know what's going on the outside, but there's a hole and the coffee cup is one piece and one hole. And the donut is one piece and one hole. Now, physical reality has more complications than because of what a cross section of a donut looks like and so on, but we're ignoring stuff like that. And then data is discrete right? In its very nature, right? We put it into a computer, we're discretizing it. And you have a bunch of dots on a page. So you're supposed to imagine now a bunch of dots on a page. This is a technical name for this as a point cloud. And you ask yourself the question, can I use this lens of trying to say that two things are the same if they have like the same number of holes? How do I do that on data? What is there to make sense of that? And so that's broadly speaking what the paper is about. And then it specifically uses examples that have a physics nature. We chose specific ones. We were really doing things from like soft matter physics and so on. But stuff that has a physics nature, and also Pokemon, but that was more in the introduction, not really soft matter. Though I guess I imagine Jigglypuff as being fairly squishy. I don't know if that's been established. But okay, so you have a point cloud. And I want to talk about how I can look at that shape of that point cloud, that topology of that point cloud. And so what you imagine doing, this is a very visual subject, so it's hard to do this without showing you stuff, but you can look at the paper and you can imagine you're doing that. Let's take a connect the dots type game, okay? So you have a bunch of dots. Now, instead of connecting them with lines, I'm going to imagine squinting and making these dots slightly blurrier. So two dots that are close enough together, if I imagine that I'm putting a disk around each dot, they eventually overlap, right? So I squint and they overlap. So imagine that I have enough dots to do that. And human beings are really good at looking at this dot, the set of dots and saying, hey, that's a Pokemon. It's not just a random collection of dots. There is some shape that's there. But you want to get algorithms that do that and you want computers to do that. And you want to do that in cases where you don't already know the answer. Because if you only did this when you already know the answer, you could just do something simpler. Right. So you want to build methods that can do this even when you don't know the answer. So the Jigglypuff example is showing that we're gradually making these dots bigger and bigger. And first you start getting identifiable things like Jigglypuff's eyes. Okay. So the eyes of some, well, two dimensional creature in this case, because it's on a piece of paper. And then you eventually make the dots. So first features appear. So you imagine I am varying the size of these dots and features first appear, and then eventually the dots become larger and the eyes fill in and then they disappear. And so you track as a function of the size of these dots, when do features appear? They are called to be born. 
And when do features die or they disappear? They're called to die. I know you can't see my air quotes, but anyway, you can imagine verbal air quotes are occurring right now. And so this gives you a length of a feature. The term that people use is persistence, right? So it's using an English term. It's actually one of the times where the mathematical term is a precise version. It gives the right intuition. And so you have these algorithmic tools that measure persistence. For a fixed dot size, I can use topological ideas. So I fix the dot size and I can use topological ideas. And so what you try to do for the shape of data, for the topology of data, is how you want to look at features that are there for a large set of contiguous dot sizes or contiguous sizes that you might be varying. So a dot size is one thing you could vary, but if I'm studying something else, and this is when the more parts of this expository paper come in, it might be something else that you're varying. It might be some, ideally something that is informed by, well, in the case of this article, the physics of your system, but it could be informed by some domain knowledge of some type, right? So you do this mathematical construction in a way that is informed by domain knowledge. And there are various research papers that I and my co-authors have also done on this. So that's the perspective that we've taken to try to put, like, so we've done a bunch of stuff with like different types of geospatial data, for instance. I'd like to hairpin out here for just a moment because I just sat yeah. in on a conversation with several of our people for the SFI <laughs> Action Network this morning okay. on AI <laughs> and understanding. And one of our fellows, Arseny Moskvichev, made the point that he believes that the future of large language models is going to be carefully curated, targeted data sets rather than this enormous like mass capture approach. And that, okay. that if we really want to work symbiotically with these chat GPT style systems that we're going to start doing is, sounds like this is what you're saying, and I just wanted to check this on you. You do need to bring in a curatorial approach. You as the human being are lending domain-specific knowledge right. to the curation of the data that these systems are actually yeah, yeah, chewing I mean, through. I, for so I don't, I think there is overlap between that. I don't know if they're exactly the same. I didn't see the conversation, but I guess curation's not, that's, I think that's at least reasonably, a reasonably apt word to use. It's basically like, I, you know, there's various things that people do in the research that can go make me rant. But so the topological tools mathematically have a certain element of abstraction. And right now, in the past few years, they're in the process of people making more and more accessible software and so on. I was mentioning that, okay, we want features that are longer because those are the ones that we think are useful, but that depends on the knob that you're tuning. This was the size of the dot as we're thinking of a knob that we're tuning needs to be an appropriate knob because if it's not, if you just say, oh, a longer feature is better, you've got a bunch of, you've got a bunch of methods that are out there and code that's available and somebody says, well, I'm just going to use this package and this thing said that this feature is longer and now here's the output of my algorithm and I'm going to say these are the features that are right. And it's just like, okay, it's great to make things more accessible and I'm strongly in favor of that. But then there's also the reverse risk that goes through it and the people don't use it intelligently and are just like, oh, longer is better. And so therefore, I'm just going to say that I'm going to put this in the machine and I'm going to just, here's the output of my thing. And well, Porter wrote this paper and said that longer is better. And so therefore, this is right. And it's like, like well, well, no. And of course, this has happened with other things too, right? It happens, certainly it's happened with community detection, happened with all these other tools where by the time somebody who is removed from a lot of the development and thinking about what can go wrong is using it, 
they're saying, well, I can just trust the output of this thing that has been put online that's easy for me to use without and put it on whatever my favorite data set is without actually thinking about the problem I'm studying. And I think that's definitely, I want tools to be accessible and I want them to use it, but I want people to try to use it intelligently and that you think about the problem you're studying, make sure that the answer makes sense. And there's just, you know, the answer is not to make tools hard to use and for people not to use them, because I think that's a mistake as well. But just when domain knowledge matters a lot, it really matters a lot. And, and there's often a danger of saying, well, here's now a tool that's easy to use. Let's apply it to everything indiscriminately. That's certainly a kind of a base issue that we run up against on a daily basis in science communication, right? There's the, the specificity of a mathematical formalization versus the accessibility of a yeah. verbal analogy. Well, and people don't like humans. Humans just don't <laughs> like, they, they, like, they want to know, is the answer yes or no? It's like, well, maybe. Like I, and someone who understands the issues is going to appreciate the nuance. But if you, if you explain too much of the nuance, then the big picture gets lost. But if you ignore the it's like, oh, why haven't you cured cancer already? Well, it's like, well, sorry. It's like, oh, your theory changed. What the hell are these scientists doing? It's like, well, we were never trying to tell you things in absolute terms in the first place. I appreciate how hard scientific communication is. I always want to speak in nuances and I don't like to... This is why my papers have so many parenthetical comments. It's just like, well, even for scientists, I don't want to pretend that the nuances are not there. And then if you put in enough of them, there's a cost to how easy things are to read sometimes. And so there's a balance even when you're talking to, to an audience of experts, and there's really a balance when you're talking to others. So I mean, it's, I love these tools, and I love working on them. And I think science means, I, okay, I'm not a science communicator, but I've occasionally dabbled in some of these articles, and I love that too. But it's just like, when people want me to say something without a nuance, I really, as I told this to you at the beginning, I hate things being put under the rug. I really, I just, there's a fundamental dislike that I have of doing that because then someone's like, oh, you can do X. And then suddenly later you figure out something where one of those nuances turned out to really be important and you, it's not X, it's now X prime. And they're like, how dare you? How come it's now X prime? It's like, well, it was never X in absolute terms in the first place. So this, I think actually gives us an affordance to double back into this so the explicit dis discussion of, of the topology of, of data because, uh, yeah. and also your other work, we didn't even get to this, but I will link to a piece. You were on a big team that Danny Bassett co-authoring right. the dynamic reconfiguration of human brain networks during learning. And here's like, right. another, here's another great example of spatio-temporal scales and hierarchical and organization. It's, it's real data and it's brain data. So it's really complicated. Right. It's like, I think about, maybe this is not the place to land this, but in, in terms of like collective learning as a, an output of process in which things have to be communicated between experts and non-experts. And that's not a one dimensional thing, right? We talked about that in the last episode with Paul Smaldino and Tien Nguyen talking about expert identification is highly dimensional problem with like experts and this proliferating number of myriad of domains. And question of, yeah. So at any rate, what I'm getting at here is that I see these theoretical questions about somebody's used Adobe Illustrator or some kind of other vector illustration program. This question of how wide the disk around each dot of Jigglypuff. It's going to, going to, there are, I have an intuition around the consequences of these kinds of considerations based on if you try to put like a color fill 
into this thing. And if it's a tiny dot, then the color bleeds out of this thing that you sure. uh, conceptually consider an object. Right. So, so at any rate, there is, I guess, what we land this is in as an applied mathematician, there is this connection between, again, theory and practice and the levels at which it is appropriate to resolve and investigate something. And this has big implications. You talk about using you and Fang, use this stuff to study street networks and cities, snowflakes, yeah. spider webs, call out, call out to Jeff West and Luis Betancourt, who've looked at vascular network topologies and, right. and so, urban and research. Actually, yeah. there, there's a number of people who've done, there's actually, we haven't done this, but there's other people who've used these tools for vascular networks of different forms. There's a bunch, there's been a, there's been a bunch of work on that. So actually, yeah, so my co-author on this paper, Elena Catafori, and some of her research papers, and I'm not and I'm not involved in these papers, is one of the people who's used these ideas for vascular networks. Yeah. So it's a different approach from what people like like Jeff and Luis have done, right? Like it's different, it's a different set of tools and different que- they're asking different questions. Somehow the systems have similarity, but they're asking really different questions about the system. Yeah. So could you clarify that just a bit? Because yeah, I just I want to so, get my head so, straight on this. So, right. So the type of questions that one might do for this from the sort of topological lens is, okay, you first say, okay, I have a data set and I can just ask, do I have holes in it and so on? Then you say, well, what does a hole even mean in the context of this particular application? When we were doing the street networks, this was an example in a paper that was a sort of set of examples. This is another one of those papers where we had a prior theory paper, although because applied math publishing is slower than physics publishing, the prior paper actually has a later publication date. But anyway, there was a paper that has methods. And then we're like, well, we spent effort trying to do these methods. Let's also have a paper that we write for a different audience that has a bunch of other applications, including the streets and the spider webs. The street application was the most serious one. And after this is Michelle Fung and me, the street application was the most serious one in that particular paper. And what we were looking at was we did not have a dot getting bigger. We actually defined our parameter, our thing that we tune in a different way than that. So there's a particular way that I have not explained in, in how we defined it. And what this is meant to do is to say locally, if I take a small part of the street network of a city, am I getting something that looks grid-like and boring like L.A.? Or am I getting something more interesting? And LA is one of the most boring examples in that data set because it's street structure. Or am I getting something like London or a city in continental Europe that has dead ends and other various things? And like one of the ones that I think we show a picture of in the paper as like Barcelona or something that has a bunch of different things go- going on. And so it's getting at a local structure of things along those lines. So. There's other people who've tried to get at local structures in with different methods. So Mark Bartholomew, who I've mentioned before, is one of the people who's done that. And in fact, in our paper, we even, because they were really looking at a similar question scientifically, but just a different mathematical approach, we even have a direct comparison in a sort of subsection where we actually compare to one of their papers. Whereas what Luis and Jeff are doing is much more at the macro scale. They're asking questions about how certain phenomena might say scale with size, right? So even though the system may be a street network from a city, the question that we're asking scientifically is at a different scale and a really very different question about it. And so 
where there is overlap is really just, okay, we're asking a question about a city, but then beyond that, everything else is just really different, the questions that we're asking. Yeah, I guess I'm just, I was thinking specifically to Luisha's work on network interventions in city structure, where they're actually okay. adding vascularization okay. into like the okay. Brazilian okay. favelas so, and that kind of a thing. Right, right. So that would be something that one could look at with this approach, where you could ask, does doing that Okay, so there there are various ways that we have not discussed of how you would actually like measure the topological summary. So like there's certain types of summary statistics of certain things that you would look at. And so we're treating this as a black box for the purpose of today. You could ask how those summary statistics, those summary topological statistics change based on intervention. And using even using actually our code, you could do that, right? Like you you could ask this question and look at this question. We have not done that. And then if you did that, you would say, well, you could ask, is the topological summary something that might suggest an intervention, right? So one could imagine that type of approach asking if these measurements can help with that. It's not something we've done. And, or in another vascular network, right? So okay, streets are not really a vascular network, but imagine you're talking about the flow of nutrients or something, right? And with experiments on like fungal data, and I know that these approaches, at least some variants of them have been used for fungal data. So Mark Fricker from Oxford is data from his lab is stuff that actually there is data that I was, it was released along with a paper that I wrote with Mark Fricker and Sang-Hoon Lee that in a different paper, Danny Bassett and Elena Catafori and some various others actually use that data with topological methods, but there's different papers and collaborators involved. And so one could imagine so these fungal ones, you actually have experimental control of how you set up the lab, and you can imagine different topological summaries being indicative of good situations or of something that you would somehow measure. I don't know what good situations means for a fungus, but anyway. But you could imagine doing that and then doing an intervention that would get you there. This is not a paper I've seen, right? Like, I've not seen someone do that, but I can at least imagine this as a project that somebody would explore. And it's a possibility. In, in there's like, trying to synthesize all of this, and I, in so doing, I want to ask you what is honestly probably kind of an insane question here, okay. because this is not this does not strike me as something that you can get at solely through the application of kind of a topological analysis. But in, in so doing, you mentioned LA has this really boring grid-like structure and London has this weird, convoluted, lots of dead ends kind of thing. And last page of this article, you talk about how you found it particularly amusing to examine the topological structure of spider webs built by spiders under the influence of psychotropic substances. Yeah, I, I should yeah, I could say where this came from, maybe. I don't know. So yeah. this would also that was also an example in this other research paper. And we decided to include a little bit of it in the discussion of this popular paper. So it was an example that was meant to be fun. So this idea, so there's a couple, there's a long story behind this in terms of science. There's this guy, Peter Witt, who is somebody who did this years ago. And there was actually, sub subsequently, there was a one-page paper by NASA where they, what NASA did is they sent... They had spiders and they gave them some drugs and they're like, okay, what are the different webs? And they there's don't say why. There's a video online for this research. Yeah, there's a video online. There's a semi-serious video that starts out with a real study and then goes off on there. And so there's these, some of these pictures got circulated. And I remember just seeing some of the pictures and I'm like, that would be cool. We could do this topologically. And I go to my then PhD student, Michelle, and I'm like, hey, this is a sign you have a good PhD student, by the way. Hey, do you want to take these topological methods and do this on the spider webs of spiders produced by drugs? And they said, yes. And so I'm like, that's a really good, that's the sign that you have a really good student that they actually think that's a good idea to go and do that. And so we decided to do that. And by the way, the caffeine spider is 
the, the caffeine, the web of the caffeinated spider and the web of the sleeping pill spider are the two to really worry about. So I'm going to sip coffee. Cheers. Yeah. So the idea though, we were amused by it because it was a fun example on, and we like to include some fun examples in the paper. And since we were doing a methods, since we were doing a paper that just said, here's application one to give you an idea. Here's application two to give you an idea. Here's application three. It's a nice paper in which to include a sort of fun, a sort of fun application as part of it. Everyone likes caffeine spider. It's people get a kick out of the example. So I'm glad we did it. Well, so this is the question that I had for you, which is it strikes me that this is the kind of windmill that the questing of complex system science is always going after the bridge that it's testing. Can we actually walk across this? Is there actually an analogy here that holds? The LSD spider strikes me as like a Los Angeles or Wichita style topology. Oh. And the caffeine spider strikes me as a kind of like London topology. And then you've got the historical contingencies. Once you can make statements about topology or network structure, then maybe this is like a, a cognitive defect from coming out of an evolutionary biology training where you learn to see anatomy as an encoding of history in the organism. And so the question I'm asking is actually not about like the cultural specifics so much as it is about how do you go from topological investigation to a different kind of investigation that is about causality right, and, right. and historicity okay. and convergence, like why it is okay. that you see similar so, structures appearing in these kind of clustered groups. Right. So it is definitely true that the structure that we see in cities is an outgrowth of different histories. And LA being a very young, big city versus London and the cities in continental Europe being older is definitely an outgrowth that we, the structure that we see is an outgrowth of that. And there are people who study that. You could use these methods to study that if you have, say, imagine you have the data of the city streets each year of a given city over the course of years, and you could look at how it changes and look at how those summaries, topological summaries change, right? So if you have the data, you could do that. And I agree that the structure that we see is an outgrowth of that. The actual thing that the method does is say, here's an input, here's a structure now, here's an output. But then you just say, all right, well, my different inputs are the structure at different times. And I ask myself, well, what are the outputs at different times? And you probably can then, you could imagine a movie of one of these summaries tracking in the movie how the summary changes and side by side tracking in the movie how the street changes or the street network changes. And it's very possible that you might find certain time dependent signatures of how something's evolved, not just that the evolution has played a huge role in what we see now. I mean, I should also say that the work that we did on that, right? So again, this Physics Today paper is meant to be a popular paper about this stuff in general. And then the particular city street thing being referred to, this example is in detail in a different paper, just with overlapping author. And what we were trying to do with these sorts of tools is to say, here are certain ways of looking at the topology of data in ways that are taking some advantage of the structure of what we're seeing and are not just blindly using a method um, that's a sort of one size fits all method. And so we were advocating that this particular choice is one that is potentially useful for city streets. And we were thinking of, I mean, we had two different examples. And actually one example, which does not get mentioned in this paper, but does speak a little bit more to historical origins, our two examples were sections of different cities, a few hundred of those, versus different parts of, and we use Shanghai, sections of the same city. And Shanghai is one where different areas of Shanghai were built and rebuilt at different times. 
And so we are advocating that maybe some of the things of the time are going to show up differently. But what we've not done is a systematic study that says, how does this really change? But one could do it. Everything is set up to do it if you have the data to, to do that in a meaningful way. So one could do this. And people have done that with city streets, with other types of, say, mathematical calculations. Awesome. Well, landing this, I'd love to know what is burning for you right now? Like, what, where are you working now? And what are the dragons you're chasing? The biggest, the biggest questions. I don't think I have a biggest dragon, but I've been spending a lot of these time on these topological things lately. I've been spending, we talked about the following a little bit, but not so much. I've been spending a lot of time on opinion dynamics. And I guess opinion dynamics does have a couple dragons. One is, of course, that things like polarization and fragmentation are huge issues. The sort of more scientifically specifically oriented dragon would be these models are really fun mathematically and validating them is a big beast. And you can write down lots of mathematical models and they can do things that seem fairly plausible. But then there's the notion of validating with real data and experiments or surveys or whatnot. And so trying to take some of these models that I have a lot of fun generalizing and playing with and working with my students on to actually try to say some notion that they're not just plausible, but maybe some of the things we're doing may actually be right, hopefully. But the idea is to try to... So the validation of opinion models is one of the dragons that I would like to do a little bit more, a little bit less running from and a little bit more maybe, I don't know, slaying it. We're not going to slay it. Maybe, Maybe we can put it to sleep. I don't know. Anyway, the analogy is really dying here. But the idea of validation of opinion models is one of the ones on my list. And then just in closing, if people have listened to this and have, are, are coming this, away... They've got, and they've gotten this far. <laughs> if they've made it all the way and they've come out of this inspired, where would you direct someone? We'll link to your site specifically, but like, where? what do you think are the absolute best resources for getting somebody from like the ELI five level at which I've engaged this conversation to something a bit more robust. So it's going to be different sources for different parts of it, I would say. So what I would, on the sort of more network side, if you're talking about like a college level course, Mark Newman's textbook is a good place to go. So the second edition is called Networks. It's written for physicists. It requires linear algebra. If you want something that requires less than that, I can. we can talk about survey, popular surveys. But if you're talking about textbook level, that would be the textbook I would recommend to start with. And then on the stuff for, say, for topological data analysis, you'd want to know some topology, but I don't know what the best math books are. I've actually never taken a topology course. I learned topology partly taking other courses and partly just from my students. So I don't actually know the best one. But if you look at the, we have a couple of references in our topology of data article. If you are somebody who's a scientist in other fields, but doesn't know this one, the Nina Otter et al. article is meant to get people started on doing this. Then there's also, there's some textbooks. There's a textbook on topological data analysis by Edelsbrunner and Harer, which you can get online. But they're all, like, we're talking advanced undergrad level, right? So it might be that we want something intermediate that's not quite popular, but somehow semi-popular before doing that. So that, that there I'm a little less sure where to go because, like, our Physics Today article is, in a sense, semi-popular, but it's not going to be, you're not going to, the day after, if you're only using that article, immediately start doing calculations. There's a little bit of stuff in between. 
Fair enough. I might just plug Complexity Explorer here. I think. Oh, you could. A, so yeah. it's Complexity Explorer. Yeah, it's going to depend. That's going to depend on which modules it has. So I think it will have modules that will help with the network stuff. I'm not sure if it currently has any of the topological ones. I haven't looked. Check that. So that might be something that's worth adding to it in the future to, to help make this more accessible. Awesome. Mason, thank you so much. This is definitely an episode in which I felt particularly out of my depth. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to, to walk us through here. You're, you're welcome. All right. Thank, thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for listening. Complexity Podcast is produced by the Santa Fe Institute a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. The Music for Complexity podcast is produced by Mitch Mignano. Find links to all of the research we discuss in this episode, as well as to the podcast's official music at complexity.simplecast.com.